to be seated. How will the world end? When will it end? Will it die of natural causes or or will it be destroyed by outside forces? And do the answers to these questions really matter? Are they just fanciful fascinations that some have? Or are they questions that really matter in our life? Calculating the sun's current rate of development, there are some who are understanding and believe and are telling us that the universe will die of natural causes in about 5 billion years. Nothing really for us to sweat there, I guess. But by that time, the sun will swallow the earth or at least scorch to death every living thing on it. So, five billion years, say some. Others speculate that an asteroid or something of the like will strike the earth and that it will take life as we know it. The earth will end at that point. So it will be a catastrophic event that will bring matters to end much sooner than the five billion years that we might calculate with the sun. On a more popular level, we are familiar with doomsday signs and cartoons and street signs and the like. We see them from time to time and it's everywhere evident in our culture, whether near or here, there's a widespread fascination with the end of the world. And of course, these end time events are of interest to Christians as the Bible reveals a catastrophic end to the world as we know it. And so indeed we are interested in these matters and have considered them often as we read the Bible and Christians throughout the world consider the end of time. That end, the Scriptures teach, will be ushered in by the return of Christ. A biblical reality that has sadly run wild in the imaginations of too many professing Christians. During my seminary days, there was a book that was entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It became a popular sensation, and I remember talking about it with other seminarians about this book and what it meant and how we should take it. No one took it seriously, but uh, it, was a, it, was, it stirred and just reminded me of this continual emphasis. Shortly thereafter, the United States invaded Iraq and a Bible-believing pastor of considerable influence, I remember him looking at me and saying very directly, these are the final signs. Christ will come back. And someone as far off from that conversation as Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam thought the very same thing and went on record to say, this will now be the end of the age because of this invasion of Iraq, 1991. Christian broadcaster Harold Camping assured his listeners that Jesus would return in September 6th, on September 6th, 1994. That was a date that he updated three times uh, over the next seven months. And then, sharpening his pencil, Camping revised the date yet again to May 21st, 2011. And he and others invested a large fortune in advertising dollars to alert people to this day when judgment would come. We could say Y2K, remember that? And the, Mayan, the end of the Mayan calendar. Obsession with world events that point to Jesus' return. 
all of these emphases about the end times, that the end is near, or the end is here, or that it's never coming, the question today is, what do you believe? What do you believe about the end of the world as we know it? Thankfully, the Holy Spirit has given us the third chapter of 2 Peter to reveal how the world will end and why it matters to each one of us. Since Jesus did not return soon after His resurrection, as many thought that He would, false teachers had arisen among Peter's readers who insisted that this meant Jesus never would return. And this teaching had a direct and degenerative influence upon the moral lives of these teachers. As it continued to have in the lives of all, continues to this day to have in the lives of all of those who dismiss the notion of an accounting before God. Without that sense of the coming of God, the coming day of judgment, a final accounting before Him, our lives tend to spiral into moral degeneracy. Peter writes to provide clarity and to counsel us who live in a world that mocks the notion of Christ's return, dismisses it as a silly myth for the most part. As we come to 2 Peter 3, we'll look at just a bit of the context here as it pertains to the whole book and to this particular section to which we've come in our work through this book. But a central theme of this book is that believers must learn to live in anticipation of Christ's return. To live their life with a focus there and an understanding that this is coming. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16, in the context of the false teachers, uh, we, we notice there that he attests here by Peter's eyewitness account of the transfiguration, the prophecies of the Old Testament, that Christ indeed will come. I said two, I meant chapter one. Chapter one, verse 16 he says here, as he, back, he will back this up with the transfiguration of Christ, and he'll back this up with the prophecies of the Old Testament. The e- emphasis here in verse 16 of chapter 1 is, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As an apostle, I announce this to you. I made this clear. This is Christ's promise. He will come again. And it is, it, it, we can be confident this is the case. His transfiguration was a foretaste of His coming in His glory. I saw it, and it confirms and is indeed a fulfillment in part of the Old Testament prophecies that He will come again, that Messiah will return, that there will be a day that comes of judgment and of glory. Peter also argues that self-professing Christians who fail to live with such an expectation fall naturally into moral corruption and blasphemy. I've mentioned this. This is an emphasis throughout the book. Chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets arose among the people as they responded to these prophecies, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their what? They'll follow their false teaching, but what does it say? Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So they'll bring in wrong ideas, which leads to wrong living, which leads to people blaspheming, speaking ill 
of the calling of God and of His Word. He's building this case throughout the book. And then obviously in chapter 2, laying bare the godlessness and the ulterior motives of the false teachers. He does not pull many punches in chapter 2. It's a, it's a difficult text that deals very frankly and pointedly with these false teachers. Coming then to chapter 3, we're introduced to the day of the Lord. And he reminds us concerning the return of Christ, concerning the day of judgment. Chapter 3, verse 3, we know first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say what? Where is the promise of His coming? He's not coming back. And they point to history to say that that is obvious. It's evident to anybody who will be willing to let go of these silly myths that Jesus is not going to return. Now these, remember, are individuals coming up from within the Christian church. And I would imagine, in part from some of the things we've seen displayed in these slides, that there will be days coming when more and more Christians side with this very point. All of this silliness about the coming of Christ, all of this date setting, and I've just scratched the surface of the many dates that are set and the many predictions that are made that do turn out to be ridiculous and they're all based on fantasy but because of that there is a growing movement even within believers and it was evident in peter's day of those who saying the return of christ is something other than actual physical return of christ and denying that final accounting there is always a corruption that comes now that is there this false teaching, the claiming that Jesus would not return, has been staked by Peter, evidenced here in the book, and now he says, here's the truth. Here's the truth, verse 10 of chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come. As I mentioned last week, if, you could, if, if the ancient text had underlining, it would underline the words, will come. He will come. Christ will come back. We have the assertion here, the day of the Lord will come. It's an emphatic statement, contrasting to the lie of the false teachers. The day of the Lord does not refer to a single 24-hour period, but to a complex of events that includes Christ's return to judge the ungodly and vindicate God's people. This day will come. The assertion is made clear. As the Old Testament prophesies, and I just mentioned three here, Isaiah 13, 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Joel 1, 15, The day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Paul picks this up in the New Testament when he says to the Thessalonians in 5, 2, 1 Thessalonians, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So Peter makes this bold assertion. The day of the Lord will come. The prophecies will be fulfilled. This day of wailing and destruction and the vindication of God's people. The description of it we find there further in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
Regarding timing, it will come without warning. As thieves prey on the unsuspecting, so this judgment will fall without warning. It will come suddenly. Jesus said in His words, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Which is why I always say when you see a truck like that we've just looked at with Judgment Day on it and a date, you can be pretty sure Jesus won't come that day. Now, I don't know how that works, and I suppose if somebody's saying every day of the rest of forever He's coming, somebody will get it right. But it won't be because they got it right. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There are too many professed Christians who live in virtual defiance of Christ's counsel here. By reading the tea leaves of the evening news and internet chatter, they determine that Jesus will come precisely when they expect Him to come. Many are bold enough to give the date. In his humanity, Jesus was not granted such knowledge by the Father. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, the Son of Man does not know. I think that's Jesus in his humanity, submitting to the limitations of humanity in that knowledge. I believe he does know today, the day that he will return. But here on earth, he did not know that day. But these Christians think God has revealed the date to them. Do not follow such folly. Don't buy into it. When it comes to silly myths, that's silly myths. That I somehow can discern in my wisdom from the things that are going on in this world that Jesus will come at this time or pretty close. He could come today. He could come before this sermon is over. He can come whenever he wants to come. But we're not going to set the date. We will never be told when Jesus is coming. Only that his return could come at any time. Now regarding the effects of this term, we see its timing and the description of its timing. It comes like a thief. Don't count on knowing when. But the description is this, verse 10, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will pass away with a roar. A consuming fire will envelop the heavens, and as a consequence, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Remember we talked last week, the heavenly bodies, the Greek term, could be elements. It's my understanding that the fundamental building blocks of the universe, the essential elements of our physical world, will be consumed by fire. And by means of this fire, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we are given here revelation of how the world comes to an end. And I realize the interest in the return of Christ and this whole complex of the day of the Lord is lengthy, it's involved, it's not one momentary event. But as we look to the end of it all and we grasp the whole point of it, this day of the Lord, the whole point of it is that all things will be reduced to the most basic elements. 
The earth as we know it will be consumed by fire and melted into an amorphous, chaotic, primal, molten sea. It will be so, so destroyed. Now think back on initial creation. What do we see there? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And what is first visible? What is first physical there in that creation account? The earth, it says, after the creation of the basic elements was without form and void. The wonderful Hebrew phrase, tohu abohu. It was without form and void. The primordial ooze, the watery, chaotic form of the essential elements of the physical universe, were hovered over by the Spirit of God in the first moments of creation. That's on day one. Now I think what we have then here in final destruction is a very similar scene. A similar chaotic state, but this time in molten form. Not so much in watery terms, but here in terms of heated elements all things through this conflagration this destruction by fire will be exposed everything when we find here in verse 10 it says here that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed you see the marginal note there uh, perhaps in the esv uh, it will be found. It could have the idea of being burned. It could have the idea of, as it is used often in judicial contexts, that the fire of God will fall and will lay bare every person and every element in the universe. So I, I think the idea is the stage on which human history played out is consumed. And thus all people and all the deeds that were performed on that stage will be utterly exposed and brought to final accounting before the Lord. It's a serious scene. But this is what God's Word reveals about the end of the world. And if we grasp the weight and the awesomeness of this final judgment, if we feel in our bones the significance of a divine fire that consumes the universe and reduces every fundamental element to molten chaos, if we realize that every human deed, every historical reality will be laid bare before the white-hot wrath of God, there is only one sane response. This is the truth, verse 10, Here's the response, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lies of holiness and godliness? Thus to be dissolved goes back to verse 7. The earth that now exists, the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It refers back to verse 10. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the, and the heavenly bodies or the basic elements will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works done on it will be exposed. That's, it's referring back to that. Since all these things will be dissolved in this way, the only response is a life of godliness and holiness. If these things are going to happen, and indeed they will, Peter stresses through this chapter repeatedly, they will, 
the only sane response is to make sure I'm on God's side. That I'm rightly related to Him. Holiness is that separation from the world system that is perishing and separation unto God to be distinctly His child, to identify with His purposes and with His saving grace. Godliness is faithful living in obedience to God's will. Godly living is what we read about in chapter 1. Add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge. It says in chapter 1 that we are to make sure that we are in the faith and to be discerning about our relationship with the Lord. Faithfulness, holiness, godliness, obedience to God, this is what comes out of understanding how the world comes to end if we really see it. One commentator made the claim, and I I believe it's right. I I haven't read the whole Bible in preparation for this sermon, but I've read the whole Bible and many times, and I think he's right. He said that you will not find in the New Testament any discussion of end-time events, any discussion of eschatology, as we call it. You will not find any discussion that fails to emphasize ethical implications. If we really discern and understand the end of the world, its effect is to change us. It points us to godliness. It points us to holiness. It points us to a life that is faithful to the Lord. And so I ask, how do I know then if I'm living in anticipation of Christ's return? How do I know if I really care about this coming? It is not because I scour newspapers and search the internet and attend prophecy conferences to get as close to the date as possible. How do I know if I'm living in anticipation of Christ's return? Godly, living, growth in holiness, ethical obedience to the law of Christ. That's the evidence. And I can do all kinds of work in prophetic speculation, and not really care about the return of Christ. I might just care about being right, or having an inside track on some insight. Is it changing your life? Is it drawing you close to the Lord? Is it transforming you? That's how I know I have sights set on the return of the Lord. When we lose sight of Christ's return, when we fail to feel the significance of the final destruction of the universe, the evidence shows up in sinful deeds, in sinful attitudes, and sinful goals. And in our setting, in our day, one of those evidences is giving in, caving in to the prosperity of our world. You just ask yourself the question, where do you think there is a more heightened sense of the return of Christ? In the midst of the suffering persecuted church or in the midst of the comfortable protected church? Look at the literature. Look at the emphasis. It's fairly clear. In our setting where there is not direct and actual persecution or physical persecution, One of the things we can rely on is our own prosperity and our ease and our comfort. One commentator reminds us of the passage from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters where he says this, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place 
in him. So the antidote to materialism, the antidote to loving the world, the antidote to depression, to failure, to doubt, to fear, is a clear focus on the reality of eternity. On how the world will end as we know it and where things are headed. When you truly perceive that this world and everything in it is going to be melted down to its basic elements by God's wrath, your soul rejoices to find safety in God. And knows. It just has a sense. It cannot find safety in anything here. There's nothing in this world that can secure us for this day but the Lord alone. So, verse, at the end of verse 11, we would live lives of holiness and godliness. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of this day, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You get the idea Peter doesn't want them to miss this point, don't you? Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. The elements are going to burn. This world is going to be destroyed by God. Get this, three times in this one chapter, direct statements. We're waiting for that day. That is our life orientation. We're hastening that day. The the Greek word could be translated, we're eager for that day, but that would seem to kind of repeat the idea of waiting for that day. And we could take the word just straight up that it is hastening that day, that in some sense our anticipation of the day brings it about. Not against the sovereignty of God, not against God's determination from eternity past of when this day will be, but in the sense that our prayers join with the work of God to bring it about. Matthew 24, 14. So our faithfulness contributes to the return of Christ. Our anticipation is working with Him in bringing this day about. We clearly see then that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment. But why would we wait in keen anticipation of that? Why would we want to live our lives looking forward to anticipating judgment. Such a destruction. I mean, wouldn't this be something you just really hope doesn't happen? There's great severity to it. A conflagration of cosmic mind-blowing proportions is horrifying, not comforting. But we find here, as Peter continues, that the day of the Lord is more than just that. It's more than just this fiery destruction. There is something glorious on the other side of the destruction. And so we read in verse 13, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So verse 12, we're waiting. Verse 13, we're waiting again. And we're waiting and anticipating not only the destruction of this earth, but we are also awaiting a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, this is a lengthy debate, and I'm not going to take time on it here. Without going into detail, what is we have to discern whether God will annihilate the universe and recreate a new heavens and a new earth, or whether God will use the same elements to create the new heavens and the new earth. 
My understanding is that God will purify every element of the physical universe with fire and then will reconstitute those basic building blocks into the new heavens and the new earth. I don't believe that the universe that we now occupy will disappear into thin air, that it will just be gone but that the elements that God created will continue. They will just be reconstituted and renewed. Again, there's a lot of discussion on that, but I think there's firm reasons to believe that. The elements will be indeed reduced to something like the original creation when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters that were then without form and void. In like manner, God will refashion out of these same elements, out of these purified elements now, a new heavens and a new earth. This view, I believe, is supported. I'll just mention two texts here for someone that would like to chase it further. But Romans chapter 8, 19-22. Romans 8, 19-22 and 1 Corinthians 7, 31. 1 Corinthians 7, 31. And other texts that I think indicate this. That what God created will not disappear into thin air but that it will be so purified that it comes back to its very basic first um, existence, the form of its first chaotic existence, and will then be refashioned. So we live in anticipation then, not only of the judgment of this world, and here's the significant point, but in expectation of the new heavens and the new earth. And you notice that phrase, in which righteousness dwells. On this new earth, righteousness will prevail. There's something to take home with you today. There's a glorious truth. Christian friend, righteousness does not prevail on this earth. Does it? Now, Thankfully, there are righteous people and people are doing righteous things and the righteousness of God's Holy Spirit is stalking the earth to save people and we rejoice in all that. But this world is not a place of righteousness. This is a place of sin, of dying, of disease, of difficulty. There is vile, entrenched rebellion against God, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and there righteousness will dwell. It will come to settle down forever. The universe itself is twisted by this sinful rebellion. It's groaning. It is subject to the devastating results of sin, and this universe is dying. But out of this destruction will come new heavens and a new earth in which everything and everyone will be freed from sin. That changes you when you believe that. It changes us. There's only one sane response to such prospect. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. You notice waiting again. Verse 12, waiting. Verse 13, waiting. Verse 14, waiting. Anticipation. Contemplation. Expectation. Living out my life knowing this is coming and focused upon it. Those who are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish or, and, and that peace. I think all of these, spot, without spot, without blemish, 
at peace are all illusions to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The peace offerings were not to be to have any blemish or spot. This is not saying we can attain sinless perfection in this life. It is saying that when our eyes are fixed on eternity, we become godly people who labor to be free of moral corruption. Ultimately, our peace with God is found in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who was without moral blot or blemish. He was sinless, standing in our place to pay the penalty of our sin and granting to us then, through God's merciful provision of a Savior, a standing in righteousness. We then are anticipating, we are looking forward to, we are precursors of that new earth where righteousness will dwell as righteousness dwells within us here. Have you experienced this peace with God? Have you come to this place where you are at peace with Him, where the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account? Is your soul at rest knowing that your sins have been atoned for, they've been paid for, and that you have this right standing before the Lord. You notice in verse 10 again that everything will be exposed. In verse 14 that everything will be found a certain way. That we need to be found a certain way. All of these words are pointing us back to the fact that one day you will die and after that comes the judgment. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Will you be exposed as a sinner, as a liar, an adulterer, a thief, as a lawbreaker, a worshiper of idols, one who is in love with yourself? Is that how that day will expose you? Or will it expose you indeed as a sinner, but one cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ? One who stands in the righteousness of another. One who is growing in moral purity. Not to gain salvation, but growing in moral purity because I have identified with Christ whose righteousness has become mine. Are you being changed by your knowledge of and your union with this risen Savior whose righteousness is imputed to you and your account? I guarantee there's coming a day when this will matter to each one of us. It will matter whether we are part of judgment, whether we receive judgment, or we receive grace before the judge. If it does not matter to you now, you're living on borrowed time. The day of the Lord and your own mortality are slinking towards you like a thief in the night. Time will stop. The opportunity will end. This is the word of the Lord. What do we make of the fact that the Lord has delayed His return for so long? He's promised this day to come, but it's not here yet. While the false teachers were saying clearly that the only obvious answer is it is never coming. But Peter brings us back in verse 15 to the real reason. He says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. 
That points us back where? It points us back to chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so, verse 15, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, as an opportunity for salvation, as an era of salvation, as a time to proclaim the Word of God to those who are lost in sin and have opportunity to repent, as a time to continue to pursue a life that is unblemished and pure and faithful and holy and godly. This is an opportunity for salvation, this delay of the Lord. And so it's time for us to search our hearts to pursue holiness and godliness in the fear of the Lord. It's time for us to seek to be without moral spot or blemish as we rejoice in God's peace. We turn here as our authority and make no apologies for it. We believe this is the word of the Creator God. This is the word of the Lord who will be the ultimate judge and Savior. This is the truth and this is the only sane response to it. This is how the world will end. When, we cannot know. What we can know is that these things matter very much. Sin will be revealed. New heavens and new earth will be formed as the eternal home for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. And I invite you then as we draw these matters to close to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and let's remember and let's feed our faith on the promises of God as we think of that new heavens and new earth through the revelation given to the Apostle John, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The old earth is gone. This is the new earth. Chapter 22 of this amazing chapter, or verse 22 of this amazing chapter, verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This new world, you notice, will be real. It will be physical. It will be a weighty existence. Here we will eat and drink and work and play and worship and serve the Lord. 
Here we will do this activity free of sin and death and disease and heartache. Here we will be us. You will be you. I will be me, though changed. We will be who God created us to be, purified in soul and glorified in body, with no need of night to sleep, I would assume, but to be forever refreshed and alive in God. Notice, we will not lose our identities through absorption into some nebulous all as the Buddhists teach. We will not be reincarnated into some other life form as Hinduism teaches and just go around on the treadmill of never-ending existence. We will not live in some out-of-body, semi-conscious, lobotomy-type state reclining on a cloud as some Christians envision it heretically. We will live under new heavens. And we will live on the new earth. And here God will dwell with us in a living, active, breathing, eternal world. You cannot know this. You can speculate about it. You cannot know this by the eye of faith and not be changed. This orders and directs the orientation of our souls. It points us to godliness and faithfulness and holiness. It transforms us slowly to have our eyes fixed on what will come. The world will end as we know it. But there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. To know and worship Jesus Christ now is the goal. So that when the great judgment falls, you are on His side, not the world's. And you enter into His life, a new life, a transformed life, in a glorified body, in a purified soul. Set your hope on that. Wait for it. Anticipate it. Expect it. Look to it. Live every day in light of this reality. And don't believe anybody who gets you so oriented to the return of Christ that they get oriented away from the transforming power of the truth in our daily lives. This is our hope. This is our focus. I will be me in glorified state in the presence of the Lord forever. Let that change you. Let it settle down into your soul right here and now, and may we never live another day of our lives the same way. By faith, by the eye of faith. Let's pray. Lord, like the doubting follower of Scripture, we say as believers, I believe. Lord, 
help my unbelief. There are those among us here who sense the reality in our bones. Our souls leap in anticipation. The joy is stirred. And we sense ourselves being pulled to the glory of the light. But every one of us doubts. It's been so long. And we would never doubt a word of our Lord. And yet time keeps telling us to question. But I thank you for the wisdom of this passage. That you are not so affected by time. It doesn't affect your faith. A thousand years are like one day and one day like a thousand years. But as mortal, temporal beings, we need your help. And I pray that you would deepen our faith and our confidence. And as the voices grow that belittle and mock and dismiss such ideas, as the voices grow who would look at the songs that we've sung today and say, those people are crazy. as people would hear this discussion for the Word of God and say, it's insane. I pray that we'd be not drawn to this world and to the voices of ridicule, but be drawn to the light of the Scriptures. It was a long, long time before Messiah came. It's been a long time that we've been waiting for Him to come again. But Lord... Help our unbelief and help us to wait. I pray that you would use this truth, this text of Scripture, to purify this church. And I pray for those who are headed to a Christless eternity and to judgment before your great wrath. I pray that they would flee that wrath and come in faith today submissively, humbly, repenting of sin and trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to save. We lay these requests at your feet and ask that you will do this work in this assembly today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.